Check out the commandments in the text. 10 Commandments from God Exodus 20, 2-17. Number 1. I am the Lord thy God, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 10 Commandments from the Papacy Number 1. I am the Lord your God, you shall not have strange gods before me. Commandments from God Number 2. Thou shalt not make unto thee a graven image, nor any manner of likeness, of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Commandments from the papacy erased because the Catholic Church uses statues and images and worships them, this is a habit that came from the Romans who always bowed down to statues of other gods. Commandments from God number 3. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Commandments from the papacy number 2. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Commandments from God number 4. Remember the Sabbath day, Saturday, to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor, and do all thy work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord thy God, in it thou shalt not do any manner of work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. Commandments from the Papacy Number 3. Remember to keep holy the Lord's day. We are commanded to keep the Sunday holy by attending and participating at Mass and by resting from our labors and business concerns. Explanation of Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's not in God's law, and Jesus never said it in his ministry. Commandments from God Number 5. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the earth. Commandments from the Papacy Number 4. Honor your father and your mother. Commandments from God Number 6. Thou shalt not kill. Commandments from the Papacy Number 5. You shall not kill. Commandments from God Number 7. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Commandments from the Papacy Number 6. You shall not commit adultery. Commandments from God Number 8. Thou shalt not steal. Commandments from the Papacy Number 7. You shall not steal. Commandments from God Number 9. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Commandments from the Papacy Number 8. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Commandments from God Number 10. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Commandments from the Papacy split in two Number 9. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Number 10. You shall not covet your neighbor's goods. Revelation 22. 1-8-1-9-1-8 I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. 19 And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. Deuteronomy 4-2-2 Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Proverbs 30, 5, 6, 5 Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. 6 Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Ecclesiastes 3-14-14 I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Popes adopted the title, Vicarious Fili Dei, which means substitute of God, in 1895,
An article from the Catholic National stated, The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself hidden under the veil of flesh. Does the Pope speak? It is Jesus Christ who speaks. Does the Pope accord a favor or pronounce an anathema? It is Jesus Christ who pronounces the anathema or accords the favor. So that when the Pope speaks, we have no business to examine, we have to obey. The Catholic Church Mirror, official publication of James Cardinal Gibbons, Sept. 23, 1893, The Catholic Church, by virtue of her divine mission, changed the day from Saturday to Sunday. Catholic Records of London, Ontario, September, 1, 1923. Sunday is our mark of authority, the Church is above the Bible, and this transference of Sabbath, from Saturday, observance is proof of that fact. Cardinal Gibbons, in Faith of Our Fathers 92nd edition, page 89. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday, a day which we, the Catholic Church, never sanctify. Our Sunday visitor, February 1950, Protestants do not realize that by observing Sunday, they accept the authority of the spokesperson of the Church, the Pope. PopeFrancisCatholic.org, July of 2014, working on Sunday has negative effect on families. Maybe it's time to ask ourselves if working on Sundays is true freedom. Spending Sundays with the family and friends is an ethical choice for faithful and non-faithful alike. In New York Street Patrick's Cathedral in September 2015, Pope Francis says, and if at times our efforts and works seem to fail and produce no fruit, we need to remember that we are followers of Jesus, and his life, humanly speaking, ended in failure. In the failure in the cross. Vatican City, December 18, 2023. The Vatican said in a landmark ruling approved by Pope Francis that Roman Catholic priests can administer blessings to same-sex couples. 1 Corinthians 6-9. 9 Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals. 2 Thessalonians 2-4-4 He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Blasphemy it's not only when you insult the Holy Spirit but also when a man claims to be God on earth or has the powers to forgive sins. Heresy is any belief or theory that is strongly at variance with established beliefs or customs, in this case, it means anything or anyone that goes against the word of God. We will learn more about this in the book of Revelation and Daniel. For many years, people believed that Mount Sinai or Horeb was on the Sinai Peninsula in southern Egypt, but no evidence was ever found. In 1970 some people discovered a supposed place that could be the real one, but when they tried to enter that land to research, they were arrested, and the videos and photos were confiscated. In 2003, two researchers went after this information and finally discovered the actual place where Exodus occurred. The name of the real Mount Sinai is Jabal al-Laz in Saudi Arabia. On the way to the Gulf of Suez, it would not be possible for the children of Israel to pass through because anywhere in the ocean, everyone would fall into a vast hole. Also, the Bible says that they went out of Egypt, not elsewhere within the country. There are two possible paths for crossing. Both are in the Gulf of Aqaba, the first is called Nuweiba, and the second is the Strait of Tehran. Both would be shallow enough for all the people of Israel to cross with divided waters and arrive in Midian which is in Saudi Arabia. This would explain a lot because the Arabs hate the Jews and God delivered the Jews out of the hands of the Egyptians, because of this hatred, 
The Arab government has always tried to hide this fact from the world. So, any Jew or Christian would ever explore those lands. They also put fences and armed military, so no one dared to pass or get close to the mountain. In 2020, other researchers went to the place and talked to a man who was part of Jihad. He confessed in his testimony that they knew the whole time that this was the real Mount Sinai and the government also knew. But they wanted people far from there, and even some Muslims did not know about this fact. But God always reveals the hidden secrets, and thanks to him, now the world knows the truth. After an expedition at sea, corals with the shape of the carriage wheels were found, and the metal detector confirmed that gold and silver don't undergo oxidation. The Egyptians had their carriages plated in gold. The archaeologists retraced the path of Exodus. At the first stop, they found the bitter waters in Mara as described in the Bible. After that, they found the twelve wells and many palm trees in Elam. Arab archaeologists found scrolls proving that Moses was in the caves, the same cave where Elijah took refuge. 1 Kings 19-8. In the place where people made the golden calf to worship it, there are petroglyphs in the shape of oxen on the stones, following the path of the children of Israel, was also found the altar that Moses built at the foot of the mountain, with the twelve stones symbolizing the twelve tribes of Israel, and the rock that Moses struck, and water came out of it for the people to drink, this place was called Massa and Meribah. The top of the mountain is charred, and the color is very dark, unlike all the other mountains ever seen. In the Bible, it says that God descended on it like a fire. Some thought the top was charred because it could be a volcano, but archaeologists broke some stones, and they have really melted around and had granite inside. The volcanic rocks are of affinite texture, which means that they have crystals of microscopic dimension, which proves the mountain is not a volcano. Also, they found many acacia trees, the same wood used to make the Ark of the Covenant. At the end of this study, there is fascinating information about this place that connects the past, present, and future. Exodus chapter 15 verse 27-27 Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Exodus chapter 17 verse 66 I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Exodus chapter 19 verse 18 18 Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. Exodus chapter 24 verse 3 4 Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Exodus 25. 10 10 have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. In the documentary Bible Secrets Revealed Season 1, Episode 2, The Promised Land, published in 2013. They say that, researchers doubt that the Exodus really happened because absolutely nothing has been found in centuries of excavations. Professor of Religious Studies Robert Cargill said, The problem we have is that, our faith tells us one thing, and the evidence, data and facts tell us something else. So, do I cling to my faith and deny the reality, the experience, the facts, the evidence? Or, do I embrace my experience, my reality, and rethink the way I think about God? But, he is the God who reveals the occult and the hidden, and this discovery removes all doubt that the Bible is a lie, because, it proves that, the path traveled by the children of Israel corresponds exactly to the evidence found, and that the mountain with the charred top and the molten stones proves that God really manifested himself in the form of fire.
Check out the pictures in the text. After God gave Moses the tablets with the commandments, God commanded him to build a tabernacle and placed Aaron as a high priest. Only he and those from the tribe of Levi could have access to it. Note, only priests could enter God's presence and minister in his name in the tabernacle. This changed after the coming of Jesus. God also commanded him to build an ark to place the tablets. This was called the Ark of the Covenant. In the tabernacle, sacrifices of pure animals were offered for the expiation for sins. This was called a holocaust. Only perfect animals were accepted. In the tabernacle they also had the menorah it is a seven-lamp chandelier which means the burning bush that God used to talk to Moses. The tabernacle was the place where God dwelt among his people on earth, and all its components had symbolic meanings. The entire tabernacle pointed to the coming Messiah. Overall, the tabernacle was a foreshadowing of the perfect tabernacle, Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us. The tabernacle itself was a construction of acacia wood framework overlaid with gold. Why did God choose a twisted, crooked tree like the acacia and not a large and beautiful one? Let us concentrate on the spiritual meaning of the tabernacle, on what it represents. The tree represents us, we are crooked and sinful. It is an image of how God wants to take us, and make us straight. God wants to transform us from something ugly into something beautiful, something that is imperfect and turn it into a vessel of holiness. The first section, the gate of the courtyard was the entrance to the tabernacle and it was the only way in, just as Christ is the only way into heaven. Jesus said of himself, I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. John 10-9. When the tabernacle was built, God instructed that the gate should always be at the east end and open to the west. Going west symbolizes moving towards God. Going east symbolizes going away from God. After Moses built the altar, fire came down from heaven and lit the altar. The Lord told Moses, remember, the fire must be kept burning on the altar at all times. It must never go out. Leviticus 6.13. After Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to light the fire on the altars of our hearts. John 14 16-17. 16 And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. 17 The Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. A priest first sacrificed at the brazen altar, on which perfect animal sacrifices were offered. Then he went to the laver of bronze to cleanse himself after offering a sacrifice to enter the tent. This represents purification, also symbolizes how we must be purified before we enter the presence of the God. John 3-5 5 Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. The place of the wash space, it's between of the altar and the tent. It means in order for us to be purified, first, there must be a sacrifice, we can't be purified without a sacrifice, it represented salvation. Leviticus 17 11. 11 for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Only the Levites were allowed to enter the tent. The second section of the tent was the holy place, where some important things were located, such as the table with the shewbread, the altar of incense and the menorah. Twelve loaves of bread was placed in the table, it means the provision of God for the twelve tribes and twelve months of the year. The loaves of bread were considered holy, an offering before the presence of God, and could be eaten only by the priests. 
The practice of communion and worship today points backward in remembrance of Christ's victory over death on the cross. In John 6:35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Later, in verse 51, he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The altar of incense was considered part of the Holy of Holies, but since it required tending so often, it was placed outside that chamber so regular priests could care for it daily. Sweet-smelling smoke from incense represented the people's prayers ascending to God. Burning this incense was a continuous act, just as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5:17, we are to pray without ceasing. Psalm 141-2. 2 May my prayer be set before you like incense, may the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. Today Christians can be sure that their prayers are pleasing to God the Father because they are offered by our great High Priest, Jesus Christ. Just as the incense carried a fragrant aroma, our prayers are perfumed with the righteousness of the Savior. The menorah is a candlestick with seven candlesticks in a row, hammered from a solid piece of gold. It was the only source of light, the light reflected off the golden walls and illuminated the whole room. When Jesus said in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There was a veil that separated the holy place from the inner holy of holies. When Jesus died on the cross, God tore the veil in the Jerusalem temple from top to bottom. No one but God could have done such a thing, because that veil was 42 feet high and 4 inches thick. The direction of the tear meant that God was destroying the barrier between himself and humanity, an act that only God was authorized to do. Matthew 27-51. 51 At that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split. The third section was the holies of holies, and only one object was housed there, the Ark of the Covenant. There was no light in the chamber except the glow of God's glory. Regular priests were allowed in the outer holy place, but the Holy of Holies could be entered only by the High Priest on the annual Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Forgiveness. Once a year the High Priest made atonement for the people of Israel. He entered the inner sanctuary, with an incense that produced thick smoke, and hid the mercy seat on the ark where God was, and sprinkled the blood of sacrificed bulls, and goats on the top of the ark to atone for his sins and people of Israel. The high priest had bells on the hem of his robe, so the other priests would know he had died if the bells went silent. Anyone who saw God would die instantly. The term, mercy seat, is associated with the Hebrew word for, atonement. The lid of the ark was called a seat because the Lord was enthroned there between the two cherubim. The ark of covenant had three things inside, the Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff and a pot of manna. The Ten Commandments as the Old Covenant God made through Moses with the Israelites required regular animal sacrifices. Everything changed with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. When Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, signifying that the barrier between God and his people was taken away. John 1:17, 17 for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Aaron's staff, which was a piece of almond wood, miraculously budded, bloomed, and produced almonds, indicating that God chose him as high priest. Numbers 17-8. That rod was later put inside the Ark of the Covenant, which was kept in the Tabernacle Holy of Holies, as a reminder of God's faithfulness to his people. 
The staff blossomed to prove that Aaron was the chosen one by God to be the high priest. The staff was dead and came back to life. This represents Jesus' resurrection from the death. And the manna is God's provision. Philippians 4 19. 19 And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. The high priest was a man appointed by God to offer a sacrifice so that everyone would have the opportunity to have their sins forgiven. In the new covenant, Jesus is our high priest. The high priest was the only one who could bring the sacrifice, not the people themselves. Jesus was the only one who could make the sacrifice for us, because he had no sin and we cannot pay for our own sins, so we need a mediator. The book of Hebrews 4:14-10:18 tells about Jesus being our high priest. Even though the offerings made at the tabernacle were sufficient to cover sin, their effect was only temporary. The sacrifices had to be repeated. In contrast, Jesus' death on the cross was a once-for-all event. Because of his perfection, Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin and the ideal, eternal high priest, and we are God's tabernacle. 1 Corinthians 3 16-17. 16 Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? 17 If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Ironically, the high priest, Caiaphas made his last sacrifice before God when he sentenced Jesus to death. The same way he wanted to dwell into the middle of the tribes of Israel, he wants to do the same in our hearts. The entire tabernacle took seven months to complete, and when it was finished, the cloud and pillar of fire, the presence of God, descended on it. The Bible constantly points to the coming Messiah, who fulfilled God's loving plan for the salvation of the world. After years in the wilderness, Moses appointed Joshua as his successor according to God's will. Moses went to Mount Moab, modern-day Jordan, and saw the promised land. God said you would see it, but you will not enter it because when Moses struck water from the rock, he did not tell the people that it was God, instead of he flattered himself, he died at 120 years old. Jude 1-9. 9 But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander but said, The Lord rebuke you. The Bible does not clearly state the reason for the dispute over the body of Moses. However, during that time, pagan peoples worshipped various deities, including individuals, as if they were gods. It was common for the tomb of such a person to become a place of worship. In the New Testament, the scribes and Pharisees show a certain kind of reverence for Moses. That's why the Bible says that no one knows where he was buried. Satan could use this to seduce the Israelites into idolizing Moses as if he were a god. He also prophesied the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. Deuteronomy 18:15-22 The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Joshua led the people of Israel to the promised land, and God also performed many miracles through him. When the time came for the Israelites to cross the Jordan River, God ordered Joshua to say to the people, "The priests must take the ark of the covenant and go ahead. When they step on the water of the Jordan River, the water will stop flowing." They passed through the river on dry land, as when God divided the waters in the Red Sea. God sent spies to Jericho, and they almost got caught, but a prostitute named Rahab helped them flee, she converted, and God forgave her, later. She gave birth to Boaz, who married Ruth and formed King David's lineage. They asked her to leave a red rope in the window because they would return and kill everyone in the city except her and her family. God said to Joshua, 
You and your warriors must march around the city of Jericho. Do this once a day for six days. Take the Ark of the Covenant with you. Seven priests must go ahead and blow their trumpets. On the seventh day, they must march around the city seven times. Then touch the trumpets loudly, all giving a great battle cry. And the walls will fall apart. Note. When the walls of Jericho fell, only one house was left standing. It was Rahab's house, God spared her because she helped the Israelites. Also the walls didn't fall because they yell, but because they obey God. God also told them to conquer Jericho but never reside in this city because it was cursed. Nowadays if you visit Jericho, you will see with your own eyes how dirty and ugly is this city. No one can prosper there. Who lives there are the Arabs not the Jews? They conquered Jericho and all the cities of Canaan. All the land was distributed among the twelve tribes of Israel. God asked them to marry each other because the Canaanites were pagans, and he did not want them to corrupt themselves again. Joshua died at 110 years old. After Joshua, God sent many judges to protect the people of Israel, starting with Othniel to Samuel. One named Samson played an essential part in the history of the Hebrews. God chose him when he was born and told his mother never to cut his hair because that's where his strength came from. Samson killed a lion with his hands and defeated the Philistines every time. They were an evil people who lived in Canaan and hated the Hebrews. One day Samson got involved with Delilah. The Philistines paid her to find out his secret of strength. He told her everything, and Delilah said the Philistines. They asked her to cut his hair so they could finally defeat him. She cut his hair while he was sleeping. When he woke up, he lost his strength, and they captured him. They pierced his eyes and enslaved him. One day the Philistines threw a party for the god Dagon, and Samson was next to the main columns of the building. He prayed to God, asking for his strength back, and cried out. Let me die with the Philistines. Samson pushed the columns, and the building collapsed, and he and three thousand Philistines died. Anna was sterile and asked God for a son. God heard her and sent her Samuel. When he was five years old, he was sent to the tabernacle to serve God. He grew up and became the last of the judges during the war with the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant was taken by the enemy, and stayed seven months with them. God brought devastation on them and filled them with tumors. Everyone was terrified, and they sent the Ark back to Beth Shemesh with much gold. Years later, the people of Israel asked for a king. God chose Saul and asked Samuel to anoint him as king. His reign began well. God was with him, and Saul won many, many battles until Saul's arrogance and pride displeased God. So, God spoke to Samuel and asked him to anoint a poor shepherd named David, who was a descendant of Boaz and Ruth, his great-grandparents, he lived in Bethlehem. Note. Saul and David sinned against God, but Saul was more concerned about losing the crown than losing God's presence. David said, Take everything from me. Just don't take away your presence. While Saul wore the crown without God, God used David without a crown. Intimacy with God will always be worth more than any position. David used to play the harp, composed many hymns to the Lord, and also wrote most of the book of Psalms of the Bible. Saul pleased him and called him to work with him. David had a pure heart, and King Saul liked him. One day the army went out in battle against the Philistines, but God was no longer with Saul, and he knew it but said nothing to anyone. The Philistine army was twice the size, and they knew they were going to be defeated. The Philistine general then said, If you defeat our only warrior we will be your slaves. 
Otherwise, you will be our slaves. This warrior was a giant called Goliath. It was normal then, and to this day, some people can reach up to eight feet too high. Everyone was terrified, and the only one who agreed to face him was David. All the soldiers laughed at him, but he had already killed a bear with his slingshot, and God gave David the victory over the giant. He took the slingshot and hit a stone in the middle of the giant's forehead and knocked him down. David took the giant's sword and cut off his head. The Philistines panicked and fled. David then became a soldier. All Israel loved him. David never lost a war. Saul began to be envious of him, but his son Jonathan said, Do not hurt David, he only helped you all those years. Saul became paranoid and sent men to kill him. David fled and spent seven years hidden from Saul. During his escape, the prophet Samuel died of natural causes. Note. This fact was proven by science. To kill somebody by an impact on the brain, it should be anything over 3,000 newtons spread over an area of 30 millimeters squared. Louis Pons is the slingshot champion and went to the Holy Land to test a replica Iron Age woolen sling and stone. He was investigating the exact technique David himself would have used to bring down Goliath. He erected a nine-foot Goliath target whose forehead is represented by a load cell device that measures impact. It's only 4.6 square inches in area, equivalent to the region of Goliath's forehead that wasn't protected by armor. The device would tell how much force would have hit Goliath's skull. When Elwis hit the device, it showed 3.62 newtons, which means that it was sufficient to kill Goliath or any person with a single sling and stone. Saul and his son Jonathan went to battle against the Philistines, Jonathan died, and Saul committed suicide. David got very sad because he did not want any of them to die. David returned to the city of Hebron, and Samuel anointed him king over Judah. In the north, Saul's son Ish-bosheth was also anointed king of Israel, and war ensued until Ish-bosheth was murdered. David was 30 years old when he became king. David unified all Israel because God was with him, and David was obedient to him. David took the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and wanted to build a temple for the Lord. God rejoiced at the idea but said he wanted his son to build the temple for him. However, when he got older, he made a severe mistake. David was married to several women, but one day he saw a beautiful woman named Bathsheba married to a soldier called Uriah. He was always at war, and David wanted her so much that he summoned her to the palace. She got pregnant. He was worried how she would explain the pregnancy, and conspired with the captain of the guard to put Uriah at the first line of his army to be killed when this happened David married her. David provoked God's wrath. God sent the prophet Nathan to warn him that he was seeing everything. The prophet Nathan told David a parable, saying, that the rich man took the only lamb the poor man had and roasted it for his guests. David got angry and said, As the Lord liveth, the man who hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. The prophet Nathan replied, This man is you, David. 2 Samuel 12, 7-14. 7. Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. 8 And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah, and if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. 
9 Why hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord, to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. 10 Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. 11 Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. 12 For thou did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. 13 And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. 14 However, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born unto thee shall surely die. David tore his clothes, humbled himself, and repented. That's why the Bible says we have to take care of the words that come out of our mouth. David cursed his own life, and the curse fell on his house four times. He uttered his own death but God had mercy on him and did not kill him. After the child's death, his eldest son Ammon raped his sister Tamar, and his other son Absalom got furious and killed Ammon. A while later, Absalom plotted against David and proclaimed himself king. During the war, Absalom's forces are routed at the Battle of the Wood of Ephraim, and his long hair catches him in the branches of a tree where, contrary to David's order, he was killed by Joab, the commander of David's army. When David is old and bedridden, Adonijah, his eldest surviving son and natural heir, declares himself king. But David ordered the priest to anoint Solomon's head the other son he had with Bathsheba. He died at the age of 70 after reigning for 40 years. Solomon then became king of Israel. He prayed to the Lord and asked for wisdom because he was very young and did not know how to rule. God was pleased with him and said, Because you did not ask for long life, and no wealth, I will give you everything you did not ask for, riches, wisdom, and glories. He became the wisest king. Everyone got admired when his speeches. In the fourth year of his rule, he began the construction of the temple of the Lord, which took seven years to be ready. It was built with a lot of gold and silver, and there was also a special room like in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was in a room separated by a veil, where only the high priest had access, and only once a year, in Solomon's time his name was Zadok. Note, as we learned earlier, the high priest was the chosen one of the Lord to be in God's presence and offer sacrifices, the burnt offering, to expiation for his sins and the people of Israel. Many kings from foreign lands visited Solomon and did much good business with him. Because of this, they gave their daughters to him as wives and a political alliance. However, they were pagans and were not faithful to the only God. Solomon ended up being away from the Lord and building temples for Baal and other pagan gods. Note Solomon's marriages were nothing more than a political covenant. Every time he went to visit a city, and the king offered his daughters in marriage, so as not to disappoint the king of that city Solomon married them all, the problem is that he ended up corrupting himself and betraying God, because he allowed idolatry in Israel. God promised him a reign of peace, but he did not trust God enough. In his head he thought that in order to have peace, he had to make political alliances with all the kingdoms around to keep the kingdom of Israel without wars. And that was his great mistake because it was not he who kept Israel's enemies away, but God himself. 
Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. The wives were described as foreign princesses, including Pharaoh's daughter. Solomon's wives turned his heart after other gods. Solomon became a tyrant, and God was angry and said, I will take away your kingdom and give it to another man, but I will do this in the government of his son. Solomon reigned for 40 years and died, so his son Rehoboam assumed the throne, he was even more wicked to the people. There was a righteous man who worked on the construction of the temple named Jeroboam. The prophet Ijah found him, tore his clothes into twelve pieces, gave him ten, and said that he would rule the ten tribes of Israel and only two would remain with Rehoboam. The people then placed Jeroboam as king of the ten tribes and Rehoboam with the tribe of Benjamin and Judah. Note The reason God divided Israel instead of taking everything from Rehoboam was the promise he made to David that there would always be a descendant of him on the throne, and the last one was Jesus, who will reign forever. That's how Israel was divided. The kingdom of Jeroboam was called the kingdom of Israel, and Rehoboam was the kingdom of Judah. Jerusalem was part of this kingdom. The unified kingdom lasted from 1,3915 BC. Jeroboam did not allow people to go to the temple in Jerusalem to pray. Instead, he made two golden calves and made the people worship them, and once again, the people did what the Lord disapproved, worship statues and images. Because of this, the two kingdoms began to have problems, and crime and violence took over everything, and also during the reign of Rehoboam, Egypt stole many treasures from the temple. After Jeroboam's death, king after king was evil and did what the Lord disapproved, the idolatry. Even though the people had turned away from God, he still sent many prophets for the people to turn back to him, but the Israelites ended up killing them all. A king named Ahab from Samaria, who reigned between 873 BC to 852 BC. God always chose each king and ordered the prophet of the time to anoint all the kings he chose, but some of them were not chosen by God, so some kings used to bribe false prophets to anoint them, that is the case of King Ahab and his father, Omiri. Ahab was an arrogant king, but he was afraid of the prophets of the Lord. He was married to several women since God was not with him. The kingdom of Israel suffered many threats from Assyria, modern-day Syria, and because of these threats Ahab decided to ally with the kingdom of Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon, and got engaged to Jezebel she was an evil woman. She was a priestess of Baal. At that time, God sent the prophet Elijah to try to open the eyes of the chosen people from idolatry. Ahab warned that he would build a temple for Baal, in Samaria, to please Jezebel and he would marry her in the temple. After it is finished, God used Elijah to try to open Ahab's eyes and ears, but Ahab ignored him. One day God sent Elijah to warn Ahab, he said, any drop of water will fall on that land, because of your stubbornness in worshipping other gods. Jezebel got angry and ordered to hunt Elijah, he went away from Samaria, but God took care of him the whole time. God fed him through the birds that took him meat and bread every day, and meanwhile the Israelites were starving because of the lack of rain, but they kept insisting in worship, false gods. Note We often think that what kind of God is that, who makes his own people hungry, who abandons people, but was it really him who abandoned us? Or we are the ones who went away from him to worship false gods, and this means not only when we worship images and statues, but also when we love someone more than God as mother, father, husband, wife, son, daughter, or even ourselves more than God, and, or especially money, 
or material goods and forget that if it were not for him, we would have nothing, because he owns everything. So while we are close to the Lord, we are protected, but when we are away from him, we are on our own. So the devil comes and take everything from us, our health, our money, our peace, etc. Jezebel had all the prophets of the Lord killed. Some managed to escape and hid in caves. Three years later, God spoke to Elijah and told him to go to Ahab and say that he would send rain again. Elijah also asked Ahab to summon all 450 Baal prophets and 400 prophets of Asherah on Mount Carmel and all the people of Israel. Elijah proposes a direct test of the powers of Baal and God. He and Baal's prophets will each take one of two bulls, prepare it for sacrifice, and lay it on wood, but put no fire to it. Elijah then invites them to pray for fire to light the sacrifice. They pray from morning to noon without success. Elijah ridicules their efforts. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud. Surely he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he has wandered away, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. After all the efforts of Baal's prophets, nothing happened. Elijah then repaired the Lord's altar with twelve stones, representing the twelve tribes of Israel. He prepared the sacrifice and asked God to accept it. 1 Kings 18, 36, 37, 36 At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. 37 Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Fire fell from the sky, consuming the sacrifice, the altar stones, the earth, and the water in the trench. When the people see this, they declare, The Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. Elijah then ordered them to kill the prophets of Baal, which they did. Then the rains began, signaling the end of the famine. When Jezebel learned what happened, she demanded Elijah be killed. He then fled and prayed to God, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life away, I'm no better than my ancestors. Elijah traveled forty days to Mount Horeb, the same place where Moses had received the Ten Commandments. He sought shelter in a cave, and God sent him out again, this time to Damascus to anoint Hazael as king of Aram, Jehu as king of Israel, and Elisha as his replacement. Ahab went to war against Assyria, and God said he would give him victory, but everyone had to be killed in battle. Ahab disobeyed and did not kill the king of Assyria. Ahab desired to have Naboth's vineyard to make a vegetable garden and told him, to give me this vineyard that I'll give you a better one, or I'll pay whatever you want. Naboth said it was his parents' inheritance, and he couldn't do it. Ahab got sad, and Jezebel asked why, and he told her. She said she would get him the vineyard anyway. Jezebel, however, plots a method for acquiring the land. The plot is carried out, and Naboth and his sons were stoned to death so that the vineyard had no heirs. Ahab took possession of the vineyard. God again speaks to Elijah and sends him to confront Ahab, telling him that his actions made him the enemy of God. Elijah tells Ahab that his entire kingdom will reject his authority, that dogs within Jezreel will eat Jezebel, and that his family will be consumed by dogs as well, if they die in a city, or birds, if they die in the country. When Ahab hears this, he repents to such a degree that God relents in punishing Ahab but will punish Jezebel and their son Ahaziah. Ahab returned to war, and due to his disobedience to free the king of Assyria, he ended up dying at his hands. Jehu's soldiers invaded the palace, and Jezebel was pushed by the window, 
When they went back to bury her, she had been eaten by the dogs. Jehu became king of Israel and killed all the descendants of Ahab as the Lord prophesied. When Elijah finished his time on earth serving God, Elisha asked Elijah to let a double portion of Elijah's spirit be upon him. Elijah agreed, with the condition that Elisha would see him be taken. Elijah, in company with Elisha, approaches Jordan. He rolls up his mantle and strikes the water. The water immediately divides, and Elijah and Elisha cross on dry land. Suddenly, a chariot of fire and horses of fire appear, and Elijah is lifted in a whirlwind. As Elijah is raised, his mantle falls to the ground, and Elisha picks it up. Elijah was so faithful and obedient to the Lord that he didn't want Elijah to go through death, so he took Elijah with him. The Lord did many miracles through Elisha during his journey. The people of Samaria were becoming idolatrous people, and the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah no longer get along because the king of Judah Jehoshaphat was God-fearing. He reigned between 870 BC 845 BC. Note. God is so merciful that no matter how much the people did what he disapproves of, he always sent a prophet to show the right way to those who were lost. Because of the people's idolatry, God decided to diminish the territory of Israel, allowing the king of Assyria to dominate several territories. Many kings reigned throughout the years. Hosea was the last king of the kingdom of Israel, who reigned from 732 BC to 722 BC. For doing what the Lord disapproves, God let Assyria dominate the entire territory of Samaria and deported all Israelites to Assyria. From that point, the mixture between the Assyrians and the Samaritans began, which was the main reason for the war between the people of Judea and the Samaritans. 650 BC, however, it was around 605 BC that the first Israelites were taken to Babylon. All this happened because the Israelites followed the habits of all the nations that the Lord helped cast out. They were worshipping other gods by building altars, making metal idols in the form of a calf, practiced sorcery and divination, burned their own children in sacrifice to Baal, provoking the wrath of God. The Lord warned Israel and Judah many times through their prophets, but no one listened to them. Note. Many people only want to worship a God if it is convenient for them, and if that God adjusts to people's wills, because they do not want to stop doing their own will to do the will of the true living God. Satan set up all these false religions for us to deviate from God's path and worship Him. Yes, because from the moment you bow down before a statue or another God, who is not the only living God, you are worshipping the demon disguised as religion. Sorcery is something disapproved by God. When someone resorts to sorcery, they are breaking God's commandments. We can understand some practices such as sorcery, esotericism, horoscope, hand reading, card reading, divination, black or white magic, consulting spirits or angels, consulting the dead, healing or healing rituals, mediumship, astrology, witchcraft, Scientology, superstitions, incorporating spirits, masonry, Mormonism. Such practices take us away from God, as happened with the Israelites, making them hostages to deceit. While sorcery holds us, Jesus sets us free. If you are involved with witchcraft, Know there is still time to move away from these practices. Your future belongs to God, and He loves you.
The concept of horoscopes is deemed false as there is no correlation between star positions and a person personality or destiny. It originated from the Babylonians, who also believed in pagan deities like Semiramis, Ninrod, and Tammuz, along with inventing practices contrary to the teachings of the living God, and he disapproves of this type of practice. The Bible asserts that only God has the ability to foresee the future, as he possesses all-encompassing knowledge. Leviticus 19.31.31 Do not turn to mediums or seek those who consult spirits, for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord, your God. Often, people are cursed by the ignorance of relatives or loved ones who love them, and want the best for them. They consecrate them to unclean spirits, thinking they are doing good, all of which happens due to a lack of knowledge of the Word of God and the spiritual world. Many also say, but that has nothing to do with it. If God himself is saying that he reproaches all these things, it is because he knows what is best for us. If you practice or practice these things, even without knowing it, you may be under a curse. There are several types of curses. The most common is intentional curses, unintentional curses, generational curses, and curses that come through trauma, words, or objects. Intentional, are those, you do knowing that it is wrong, unintentional ones are those you practice without knowing it, or because someone put it on your life. Generational curses are those that pass down from generation to generation, creating a vicious cycle. For example, when the father is an alcoholic, violent, or uses drugs, the tendency is for the children to follow a similar path. Curses due to trauma occur when a person has suffered some form of abuse, be it psychological or sexual, or experienced rejection, mistreatment by parents, among other traumas. The curse through words happens when someone casts a curse on you through spoken words, or when you curse yourself by uttering negative things or profanity that affect your life. It is important to know how to identify these curses so that you can break the cycle in your life. When you are under a curse, demons gain authority to enter and destroy your life. For example, if you experience mental or emotional crisis, repeated or chronic diseases, especially durational ones, sterility, a tendency to abort, the breakdown of marriages, and alienation of the family, continuous financial insufficiency, a predisposition to accidents, a history of accidents, premature or unnatural deaths in the family, family fights, suicidal thoughts, a lack of peace, inability to sleep at night, depression, nightmares, a desire to leave everything behind, loneliness, oppression, or a feeling of a void, that parties, people, money, or alcohol can't fulfill, you may be under an evil curse. James 3-8-10. 8 But the tongue can no man tame, it is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. 9 Therewith we bless God, even the Father, and therewith we curse men, who are made in the similitude of God. 10 Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Matthew 15-11. 11 Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Proverbs 10-19. 19 In the multitude of words there lacketh not sin, but he that restraineth his lips is wise. Proverbs 18:21. 21 Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. What comes out of your mouth determines what goes into it. You will eat the fruit of your lips. Imagine if your words were a plate of food, would you be able to eat this meal? The tongue is a tool that can be used for better or for worse. We must be careful with the words we choose to speak and use our tongue to encourage others. Our mouth is a portal, and through it, we can summon demons without even realizing it. When you curse, for example, saying, shit, 
which means excrement, you attract the spirit of Beelzebub, occasionally known as the Lord of the Flies, who is the spirit of death. This spirit comes to kill your dreams, destroy your finances, and harm your family. And that's the reason that many lives are exactly what they are declaring. When you declare negative words against your own life, saying that it will not work or that it will not happen, you are releasing a decree in the spiritual realm for demons to enter and act against you. The spiritual realm operates through legality, both God and the devil need authorization to enter your life. Although God is sovereign, he does not override what he himself has established. If tomorrow you want to move away from God's presence, he will try everything to bring you back, but he can't force you because you have free will. The devil can't invade your life, he gives you a suggestion, and you accept it. When you say certain things, it's as if you give power of attorney to the devil. From there, you authorize him to do whatever he wants in your life. Many parents are cursing their children without knowing it through words. Words serve as keys, doors, and decrees in the spiritual realm. When you speak a good or bad word, you are giving legality to attract to your life what you said. Deuteronomy 7:26. 26 Do not bring a detestable thing into your house or you, like it, will be set apart for destruction. Regard it as vile and utterly detested, for it is set apart for destruction. We live in a world where people want to harm others without caring about the consequences. They often use artifices to harm you without you realizing it. People never want to see you doing better than them. If your situation is worse than theirs, then it's okay. However, if you're better than them, it becomes a problem. They start to be envious of you and do everything to destroy you. Some of them use tricks, pretending to be your friend, but behind your back, they will do everything to harm you. There are reports of people who experienced defeats in many areas of their lives because they received consecrated objects as gifts or bought these items unknowingly. For instance, there was a case of a child manifesting a demon, and the mother discovered that two souvenirs with the symbol of the goddess Isis of Egypt were in their possession. After destroying the objects and praying for her son's life, he never had the problem again. So, we have to be careful about what we bring into our homes. It's essential to remember that consecrated objects cannot be sanctified. In other words, we can't pray on the object, we have to destroy them. Even some Christians, due to ignorance in the spiritual realm, acquire objects with the intention of bringing luck, happiness, love, wealth, peace, and other types of benefits. The only one capable of bringing luck, love, peace, wealth, happiness, and many more benefits is Jesus Christ. Satan may promise all of this to you, but he will never fulfill those promises because his only goal is to make you suffer. If he gives you something you asked for, he will surely take everything away in the future and still demand a very high price. Many people are still reluctant to give up certain consecrated objects they have owned for several years, which may have belonged to a loved one in the past, and are kept as a form of memory and good memories. Using objects such as amulets can also bring a curse into your life. Some examples include crystals, nazar, four-leaf clover, yin and yang, holy water, horseshoe, rabbit's foot, dreamcatcher, wind chimes, hamsa, buddha, ganesha, mandala, cornicello, esoteric objects, zodiac sign objects, tarot cards, etc. These types of objects are used in satanic rituals, and many people use them for luck or as protection from evil, unknowingly bringing harm to themselves. The only one who can bring you joy, prosperity, and protect you from evil is Jesus. God has often stated that he repudiates this type of practice, he is enough. This does not mean that demons reside in objects, it is the hidden activity itself that attracts them. 
For instance, the painter Giovanni Bragolin couldn't sell any of his works. Seeing the dire situation, he made a pact with Satan to sell his paintings and become a prosperous artist. Suddenly, all the painter's paintings were sold. The Sun, the newspaper in the UK ran a story in its edition titled, Blazing Curse of the Crying Boy, and explored how there had been many houses in Yorkshire, where the owners had at least one print of the crying boy, that had burned down, and yet the painting mysteriously survived unscathed. This was reported by a fire station officer, who had personally logged as many as 50 crying boy fires up until that time, which dated back to 1973. After that, many people began to get rid of their paintings, because the people who bought those paintings began to have a lot of financial problems, family, health problems, etc. I don't want to make you worried, thinking that everything you've gained can be a curse. Don't think like that, or you may become paranoid. If you want to cleanse your house, removing anything that may be harming you, simply enter every room, pray, and ask God to reveal what is causing harm. I'm sure it will be revealed. Every curse can be broken through the cross and in the name of Jesus. Through his precious bloodshed on the cross, Christ redeemed us from our sins. Galatians 3:13. 13 Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one who hangeth on a tree. If you think you are under a curse, here is how to break them by following these steps. Intentional curse. You must ask God for forgiveness for any sins you've committed and for seeking the curse that may be affecting your life. Renounce all covenants, consecrations, oaths, promises, or other supernatural means that currently have a spiritual impact on you and that were made by you. Deliver these curses to the cross of Christ. Unintentional curse. You should ask God to come and reveal what is affecting your life, in case you are unaware. Ask God for forgiveness for anything done by people who thought they were helping or even, blessing, you. Cancel and render ineffective, in the spiritual world all the requests and consecrations made by these individuals related to your life. Recognize that only Jesus Christ can fulfill what was asked. Deliver these curses to the cross of Christ. Generational curse. The first step is to identify the type of curse you need to break. Acknowledge that you are under a curse. Confess the family sins of your ancestors and request that this cycle be broken, not passing on to your children. Ask God for forgiveness on behalf of your ancestors, and ask Jesus to cover you with his blood. Curse about traumas and words. You should also identify the traumas that currently imprison you. Ask God to come and minister forgiveness to your heart, granting you enough strength to release forgiveness to those who have offended or hurt you in the past. Cancel, in the spiritual world, everything that has been done or said. Ask God to purify your lips and empower you to refrain from saying negative things that could bring curses into your life. Cursed objects. Cancel, in the spiritual realm, all the effects that the object may have brought as a curse and all consecrations that have been made to demons. Confess the sin of bringing a cursed object into your home, destroy it, and fully renounce ties with evil spirits. I advise you to dispose of consecrated objects by delivering them to a church so that they can be properly dealt with. Never pass them on to others, as what is not beneficial for you may not be good for others either. These ties are established, even unconsciously, the moment the person brings the object into the house. Demons gain the authority to invade the house and oppress its residents. If you are not sure if you are under any curse, say this prayer aloud. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross and becoming a curse, so that I could be redeemed from every curse and receive God's blessing. I cancel, in the spiritual realm any distortion of what I am reading or hearing. I ask for revelation, 
guiding me to understand the curses that may exist in my life, and to break them by the powerful name of Jesus. Because of your finished work, I ask you for forgiveness of my sins, I ask you to set me free from every curse that is over my life. I renounce the sins of previous generations and break away from any generational curse that is over my life. May this cycle be broken at this moment, and may my children and future generations not carry any of these curses with them. I also ask for forgiveness for the sins of my ancestors, spanning the first, second, third, and fourth generations, including consecrations during the period of conception, throughout gestation, and up to birth. I acknowledge the involuntary curses imposed upon me by my parents while under their care. I also ask for forgiveness for the sins of my ancestors who sinned against you in ignorance. I declare that all these curses be broken in the name of Jesus. I also ask for forgiveness for the sins of my ancestors who sinned against you in ignorance, spanning the first, second, third, and fourth generations, including consecrations during the period of conception, throughout gestation, and up to birth. I acknowledge the involuntary curses imposed upon me by my parents while under their care. I declare that all these curses be broken in the name of Jesus. I also break any word curses that have ever been spoken over me, or that I have said, and I command any spirits associated with curses to leave my life now. I also cancel in the spiritual realm all the curses and negative things that have come out of my mouth, and I ask for forgiveness. I request that the Lord purify my lips and help me refrain from speaking these words that curse me, for alone I do not have the strength. I ask the Lord to minister forgiveness in my heart so that I may have enough strength to release forgiveness to those who have offended or hurt me in the past. I now place the wounds of my soul on your altar, so that the Holy Spirit of God may touch and heal them, allowing me to have a relationship with you. I also cancel, in the spiritual realm, all the effects of objects that may have brought curses, and every consecration that was made to demons. I ask for forgiveness for bringing a cursed object into my home, and I renounce all ties with evil spirits. In the name, and by the blood of Jesus Christ, I break the power and hold of every curse that has come to me through ritual or ritual sacrifice. I command all demonic spirits that have gained access to me through curses and cut off and banished from me and my household, in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I repent for rebelling against your divine guidance and for allowing any other spirit to confine, control, and manipulate me. I renounce the spirits that have controlled my eyes, my mind, and my ears. I ask the Lord to cleanse my paths and remove anything that hinders my relationship with you. I pray that from today onwards, I may be washed and redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus and that I may be born again of water and the Spirit, living in dependence on you and being in the center of your will. I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, write my name in the book of life. I now claim every spiritual blessing that my Heavenly Father has given to me in Christ Jesus. I give you thanks and honor and praise. Amen.